All right, that's our passage. John chapter 10, uh, turn over to verse 22 or navigate on your device. John 10, 22, as we continue our journey through John. Ooh, I like that. Journey through John, get it? Two J words, man. John 10, verses 22 through 42. The topic, Jesus asked for which of the many works he had shown them did the Jews want to kill him. The title of our message, The Greatest Shown on Earth. Let's pray. Father, we're here to listen to your spirit. We want to be those who have ears to hear what he says to our church and to those of us who make up this church, Lord, as living stones uh, put together in a very unique and special way today. Uh, And so, Lord, I pray that uh, your voice would be known to us through one of the many ways that you've chosen to communicate, Lord. Of course, the word inspired by your spirit who indwells us. Uh, but also our circumstances and things that go on in our lives, Lord, that you can point to and uh, the, the discussion we have with other believers, Lord, those kinds of things. In, in every way and many ways, Lord, speak to us this morning from your word about your son. We thank you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Hobbits might be the unlikeliest of all the unlikely heroes. In an epic tale featuring extraordinary men, elves, dwarves, and wizards, The hobbits carry the day. Israel's greatest king started out as an unlikely hero. When Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel, his family never for an instant considered that it could be David. When David offered to face off against the daunting, taunting Philistine giant, his brothers chided him. Saul suggested David wear his kingly armor, but the fit made David look ridiculous. David felled Goliath of Gath. There is no arguing the unlikely hero went on to be Israel's greatest king. David's ancestor and descendant, Jesus, was as unlikely a hero as they come. Nothing in his life recommended him. In one of the few descriptions we have of him, Isaiah said, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He did nothing noteworthy for 30 years except learn obedience. To a generation of Jews with high expectations of a conquering Messiah, Jesus would describe himself as the good shepherd. The Jews were looking for someone a little bit more militant. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your shepherd came to be a king. And number two, your king is coming to be a shepherd. Let's take a look at the shepherd king in verses 1 through 31. Only Arthur could pull Excalibur from the stone. And it was all the proof needed that he was the king, however unlikely it seemed, because that would identify the king. Only a shepherd could be Israel's king. God had made that clear in the scriptures and the Jews should have recognized it. For example, and these are just some examples, uh, Psalm 80, verse one. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Uh, Psalm, 97, uh, Psalm 95, verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. Right? Remember? Huh? Man, I love it. The Messiah who would rule forever would be a shepherd king. 
Micah 4, 12, and 13, looking forward to the reign of the Messiah over the earth that we call the millennium or the millennial kingdom, says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. The Jews would hard pass on the good shepherd. They were looking for a hammer. And so let's look at uh, verse 22, jump into the text. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Feast of dedication, the festival of lights, Hanukkah, all different names for the same celebration. It's held annually by Jews for eight days to commemorate the cleansing and rededication of the temple after a historic event. It was not an original feast. It became a tradition in the second century BC. Syrians led by Antiochus Epiphanes marched into Jerusalem in 167 BC and defiled the Jewish temple. Judas Maccabeus was a Jewish priest, a family of priests. His dad, I think, was Matthias. He led the successful, appropriately named, Maccabean revolt against the Syrians from 167 to 160 BC. He removed all of the statues depicting Greek gods and goddesses and all the other things that otherwise defiled the temple, and he purified the temple. John's mention of Hanukkah gets the reader thinking about the Maccabees and Jewish independence. The mention of Solomon, King David's son and successor, recalled the glory days of Israel, days when they were not oppressed and, and under the heel of uh, oppressors, but uh, when they had a, an amazing, expansive kingdom uh, and were a wonder in the world. A king like Judas Maccabeus, ruling a kingdom like Solomon's, was what the Jews expected. And so John is giving us some clues here in this verse about the, the dispute that they're going to have over who Jesus is and was. Maccabeus is a title. In Aramaic, it means hammer or sledgehammer. It was given to him either on account of his ferocity in battle or because a hammer was his weapon of choice. Probably both, obviously. If your hammer is a weapon of choice, then you're ferocious. Although I was talking to one of the guys after first service, and he said, you know, a hammer's really good against armor, uh, especially if it has a pointed end, because you just wipe guys out every few seconds. All you got to do is hit somebody, and it folds up their armor into them because of the pressure, and they can't fight anymore, and then you hack their head off. Too graphic? I'm sorry. Hey, you know, it's the Bible, man. Uh, but anyway, uh, so uh, the hammer. Judas the hammer. Uh, you are occupied and oppressed by the mighty Roman Empire. Do you want Judas the hammer or Jesus the shepherd? I mean, not knowing what we know about Jesus, you know, that he's the son of God and that he commands angels and all of that. If, if you were a non-believer and this was your choice... I think I'd go with Judas the hammer, don't you? Has a little bit of a track record. This shepherd guy, he may have killed a lion or a bear, maybe not, who knows, but let's, let's go with the seasoned warrior. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They surrounded him. This is like a gang of bullies. Were you ever bullied at school? Or were you a bully? But I, I, you know, I can remember times of, you know, just 
it didn't take a big group of just three or four guys standing around you, hemming you in, wanting your lunch money uh, or something uh, like that. There was one guy, it just took him, his name was Daryl Duro. Uh, he was a guy that, uh, a tremendous bully, uh, one of the great bullies of all time. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I ate dirt one day because of Daryl. Because uh, he would, he had this thing that he would do, if you didn't do what he wanted, he'd get his fingers under your rib cage and start pulling your sternum out. Uh, and uh, tough kid, you know, so. Uh, I don't know if he made it or not, but. Uh, so they're, they're bullying Jesus. They, uh, maybe they think they can intimidate the Lord and that he'll stumble a little bit because he's surrounded and there's no way out. Christ is a title. It means anointed one, the promised Messiah is the unique anointed one. Jesus answered them in verse 25, and he said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. Jesus didn't say, I've given you ample evidence that I am the Messiah. Too bad you can't believe me because you're predestined to perish. They chose disbelief in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. There were healing upon healings and exorcisms upon exorcisms and people being raised from the dead. John, at the end of the book, says so many things happened. If you wrote them all down, the world would be filled with their books. They chose disbelief. Now, their previous hero had wielded a sledgehammer. In their disbelief, they could not imagine that a shepherd with only a rod and staff and sling could overthrow Rome. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There are over, have you ever been like a, a rabbit trail when you're doing your research or you're looking at something online? You think, how did I end up here? I started on eBay, you know, and then you're somewhere in Mesopotamia. But uh, there are over 50 known whistled languages that are just whistles. I just recited the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> this is a true thing, though. There are whistled languages. Look it up. You know, it, it, there's one. The famous one is called, uh, it, they call it the Turkish bird language, but that's a misnomer because it's not about birds. It's kus dili, uh, and they communicate through these high-pitched whistles and melodies. These people live in the mountainous regions, and they communicate by whistling because you can't, they can't shout. It's not like the whistle is louder. It's a lost system now because only the older people do it because now they have cell phones and can text. And so texting has ruined whistled languages. Someone, I forget the name of it, but they've translated Spanish into whistles. And so there is a whistling Spanish. It goes like that. But uh, anyway, Shepherds have a language of calls that only their sheep will heed. That's the whole point. I spent a lot more time on that because it's just fun. Jesus doesn't so much teach us a new language as he opens our ears to hear his voice in different ways, in the ways that he's speaking to us. Mostly, of course, through his written word that the indwelling spirit brings to our mind or teaches us or counsels us from but also through other believers talking to us and our circumstances and our sufferings, we learn the calls and the promptings of our shepherd and, and to hear his voice. We can hear his voice, we learned last week, and we learn more about uh, being quiet enough in our daily life to, to actually hear it. And so verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 
The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, this is one of the clearest statements in the Bible that one who believes in Jesus for salvation will never be lost. Believers sin and stumble, but Jesus as the perfect shepherd loses none of his flock. Eternal life is a gift. If one has it, he has it eternally. They shall never perish is a strong affirmation in the Greek. They will indeed not ever perish. The security of the sheep is found in the ability of the shepherd to defend and preserve his flock. One commentator said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. We really do need to depend on God. John chapter 10, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. F.B. Meyer writes, note the safety of those who really belong to Christ. They are not only in his hand, but in the father's because the father and he are one. Here is a double protection. They may wander far, lose joy and comfort, fall on dark and stormy times, but he is responsible for them and will seek them out and bring them home. Another strong statement about our security in Jesus once we're saved. But then, as so many do, Meyer adds this caveat. He says, if any should presume to live carelessly because of this divine grace, it's clear that such a one is not one of Christ's sheep. Now, I understand what he's saying, but what he's saying actually is that if, if you go on sinning, uh, well, then you're not a Christian. Abraham's nephew, Lot, is the poster boy for living carelessly. You can't imagine anyone more careless than Lot. If you're not familiar with this story in Genesis, Abraham's nephew always made the wrong decision. And it was always based on the flesh, on what was good for him outwardly. I mean, the guy, he's just a knucklehead. But we learn in the New Testament that he was saved. Not a deathbed salvation. It says that his righteous soul was vexed while he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so uh, the Apostle Paul allowed that there were carnal Christians. Now, are we happy about this? No. Nobody should be a carnal Christian or a lot. We don't have a license to sin. But the minute we start backpedaling from our salvation, being secure in Jesus on account of sin, our walk with God becomes works-oriented as we develop standards and strategies to maintain our status. Grace abounds where sin abounds. Should we sin then that grace would abound? Paul says absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And so we're not giving people a license to sin by telling them that they're, they're still saved as sinners. You know, it, it, you think, well, how far can my sin go before I'm not a Christian? Well, how far does the cross extend to forgive sinners? And so, now, the problem is, I don't know anybody who would want to live as a reprobate sinner when they've found the Lord. You know, think of it as a family. I mean, a lot of us have a, a dysfunctional families, and we think, you know, we think of the Lord's family that way. But, you know, what we wouldn't have given, what you wouldn't have given maybe for a really great dad and mom and family and everybody's happy and, you know, uh, doing that, well, that's what you have now in Jesus Christ. And so why would you want to goof off in the world? What did the world ever do for you except get you addicted and arrested and, you know, all the other things that go with it? And so Pastor Chuck Smith said, there's a difference between losing your salvation and leaving your salvation. If you lose something, you don't know where to find it. You can't lose your salvation because you always know where to find it. It's in Jesus. You can only leave it. And when you think about it, 
Um, Let's say you get saved later in life. You're born again. You're put into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You're called the Son of God, on and on and on. And then you fall back into sin. You, you, You can't lose those things and have them happen again. Before I was a Christian, my mind was a blank. I was just a reprobate sinner. And then I became a Christian, and like you who've become Christians, God is with you every day of your life. You're in communion with him, in communication with him. When you sin, you feel bad, those kinds of things. You don't go back to that state of being stupid and not knowing God. Uh, Do you know what I mean? You can't lose those. You can't be born again, again, and again, and again. You, You can be born again. And sadly, you can commit all kinds of sin. But do you want to, and should you? Of course not. And so uh, we confuse living carnally, I think, with apostasy. An apostate is someone who abandons the faith. It's clear from the Bible that apostates are people who made professions of faith in Jesus but never genuinely received him as Savior. They were pretend believers. And it's not just that they're committing sin. They actually say, yeah, I'm not a Christian. I, I reject Jesus Christ. It just didn't work for me. J. Vernon McGee writes, I believe in the eternal security of the believer and in the insecurity of the make-believer. And I like that. That's about as far as we can take it. So uh, walk with the Lord. And, you know, what pleases God? Holiness. Without holiness, you can't please the Lord. And he is working his holiness in your life day unto day. I and the Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. The Father and Jesus are not the same person. To say they are is a heresy. They are equal. The Jews understood here and back in chapter 5, Jesus was saying he was equal to God. I'm starting to think in the temple there were vendors with those carts like we have here in town that walk around with, you know, selling pillows from China that are laced with formaldehyde and, you know, all whatever else they have to eat on them. But in the Jewish temple, they had little bags of rocks, stoning bags. Because these, they're in Solomon's porch where it'd be like being in here and I'm going to say something in a few minutes you might not like and, and then you say, where are the stones? Where are the stones? We have to stone Pastor Gene. They could always find stones. And so they either bought them off these carts or they had concealed carry permits. <laughs> hey, what are you carrying today? Granite. Oh man, I got some river rocks. I don't know if I'll use these because people have painted on them. But you know what I mean? And they always had stones. We like to remind you that Jesus' greatest work is you. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In various places, we're compared to pottery being made by a master potter, letters and poems being written by him to be read by all men, living stones placed in a magnificent temple of God, a bride being made more beautiful each day. Why live carelessly when the Lord is so involved with you? Your king is coming to be a shepherd. Spectre, the League of Shadows, Hydra, the company, the Adjustment Bureau, Chaos, Thrush, the Syndicate. Those are a few of the secret societies on film and television, and as many as you can recognize tell you your age. Who remembers Thrush? Remember what Thrush, right? Man from Uncle. 
Chaos, get smart. I love it. Skull and Bones, the Freemasons, the Knights Templar, the Illuminati, Bilderberg. Those are a few of the real world secret societies. There is a group of supernaturals in the Bible working in the background. They are secret only because we consistently misidentify them. I'll go out on a limb and say that um, most people, I don't want to say in the West, but um, most of us in the West uh, have a, we believe in the supernatural, but not really. We don't want to get too deep into it because it's scary and it sounds weird. And so uh, we misidentify some supernatural individuals in the Bible and it creates problems. So let's see if you track on this. A uh, group of supernaturals in the Bible working in the background. Let me read a few verses to you. Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7, we read, And so the heavens will praise your wonderful deed, O Yahweh, even your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the sky is equal to Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh among the sons of God? A God feared greatly in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all surrounding him. In Job, we're told the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came to present himself before the Lord. Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was punished by God with temporary insanity. That sentence was handed down by the decree of the Most High and the decree of the Watchers. The assembly of the holy ones, those in the sky surrounding him, the council of the holy ones, the sons of God, the Watchers. These supernaturals are nowhere more evident than in Psalm 82. I'll give you a couple of quotes from that. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. I said, you are gods. Jesus will quote from Psalm 82 in verses 34 and 35. We won't understand a word he's saying if we misidentify these supernatural individuals. Now, we left Jesus surrounded by an angry stone-wielding mob, Verse 32, he answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father, for which of those works do you stone me? Jesus gave glory to God the Father, so can we. Oswald Chambers writes, our purpose should be to display the glory of God in human life, to live a life hidden with Christ in God in our everyday human condition. We're hiding in Jesus so that people can see him and not us. Famous actors make appearances in films without appearing in the credits. And sometimes you recognize them or you think it's somebody and other times they completely fool you. Daniel Craig was an Imperial Stormtrooper in The Force Awakens. Now that one fooled you because he was in full Imperial Stormtrooper uniform and so you never saw his face. Glenn Close was a pirate in the movie Hook. Matt Damon, Interstellar. My favorite, Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder. There are a bunch of these if you look them up, uh, and, and it, it's, it's really interesting. Stay hidden in Jesus and enjoy being an uncredited servant. You don't need the credit. He does. Get over the desire for recognition and honor in the church. Instead of being put out when overlooked, rejoice. You can develop this. As a human being, you get put out when you're overlooked. You know, that you did something, and they're honoring everybody else but you. I understand that. In the church, that should be a blessing. You should go to the person and say, do not mention my name. If you mention my name, I'm going to punch you or something. You know that, but you, don't want, you do not want recognition in the church. You want to stay hidden in Jesus Christ. 
Verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, Psalm 82, I said, you are gods. Now the Bible teaches that there is one God existing in three persons. The Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Not three gods, one God, three persons. There is no supernatural in the unseen realm equal to God. It isn't the yin and the yang. It isn't the force. It isn't good versus evil. There is God and there is all the other stuff. And there's no equality. There's, there's nothing to compare God to. The Bible frequently says that God is above all gods. We hesitate to say it because it sounds like blasphemy, but if God is above all gods, there must be other gods for him to be above. And if you substitute in your mind the word supernatural beings, then it's not a huge problem. We don't mean idols made of wood and stone. They are, there are gods with a lowercase g. They are a supernatural beings who inhabit this unseen realm. A Jewish writer I ran across, Elon Gillard, says, the different scribes who wrote the biblical canon believed the incorporeal world was populated by a multitude of gods, but that the Hebrews should not worship any of these other deities, only Yahweh. This is stated in the second commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now we have a tendency to read that as if uh, it's, it's our idols or the things that we covet. And so we would read that and say, you know, God says, you shall have no other Maseratis before me. And I understand, you know, things can be idols and all this, but the Bible says there are other beings, supernatural beings, lesser gods that you can follow. And this kind of helps you open up your mind a little bit too to some of the things that went on with the children of Israel. They weren't just worshiping, uh, you know, Molech as a little statue that they burned babies on. There probably was a Molech, uh, you know, a, a lesser god. And so it's very, very interesting. Jesus quoted from Psalm 82. We don't have a lot of time, so let me just give you a synopsis of the psalm. The context is that Yahweh, I'm going to say Yahweh for a while so it differentiates him from other gods. Yahweh gave a measure of authority over the nations on earth to certain lesser beings. In their oversight of the nations, they judged unjustly, showing partiality to the wicked. Yahweh promised that he would judge them. He says in the psalm, you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. And then he promises to give their authority over all the nations of the world to someone else. And so it's a, it's in a very important psalm in terms of what is happening in the unseen realm with the nations of the world. 99% of the commentaries you read argue that the gods in Psalm 82 are human judges on earth. Uh, if somebody wants me to give me $100, I'll bet you $100 that in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, it immediately says these gods are men, they are human judges, etc., etc. That's not true because how can a punishment be uh, you shall die like men? You don't tell men that they're going to die like men as a punishment. There's a differentiation in the psalm between men and these beings called gods. And if these gods are mere men, then Jesus is saying the absolute opposite of what he is saying. He's saying, listen, you guys are about to stone me. I don't want to be stoned. Remember in Psalm 82 how God calls certain beings gods? If he can call certain beings gods, what's the big deal if I call myself a god? 
Well, no, this is, Jesus said, yeah, there are these little gods and my father gave the authority of the nations to them, but he's gonna judge them and he's gonna give the authority over the nations to me because I am his equal. That's what's going on in that psalm. And so uh, the last verse of that psalm brings it home. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So who is a person with the uppercase G who will judge the earth and inherit all the nations? Well, that's Jesus. Obviously, everybody, uh, every Christian knows that. He isn't one of the lesser lowercase G gods. Unlike them, he is God's equal. Unlike them, he is God. Verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. When the Lord said the scripture cannot be broken, he means that as they read it, it stands. They, they can't uh, disallow what the Lord is saying. In this case, in Psalm 82, Yahweh said that he would take authority over the nations from lesser gods and give it to someone equal to him. He would give it to the unique divine son of God. Now we'll see in a minute that the Lord is going to retreat back to where he started from. And so this is like a, almost a high point or a summary of his preaching to these men. He's saying, hey, you know, what's happening here has cosmic significance. It's not just that you're rejecting me and preferring someone else who can overthrow Rome. This is what Psalm 82 is about. This is what the universe is coming to. It's coming to the day when the kingdoms of our God and the kingdoms of our Christ become the kingdoms of Jesus and he rules forever as we read in Revelation. How will he rule? He will rule them with a rod of iron. That's a quote from Psalm 2 that's also in the book of the Revelation. The rod is the tool of the shepherd. The king is coming as a shepherd. Verse 37, if I do not do the works of my father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. The Jews tried as hard as they might, but they could never find a way to attribute Jesus' works to anyone but the father. They usually attribute it to the devil, Beelzebub, or that he had a demon. But we talked about that a little bit last week. Demons don't go out and say, you know, who can I heal to really get under God's skin? Who can I raise from the dead that's really going to punch home wickedness? No, they do the stuff you see in the exorcist. You make your head spin around, and you vomit, and, you know, you kill Catholic priests. You know, the poor Catholics, I, I, this is just a personal, this isn't part of the Bible, so it's just my personal opinion. But having grown up Catholic, you think they would have exorcisms figured out by now. I mean, they do enough, right? But they always, the Catholic priests always get scarred and beat up, thrown out windows. I mean, it's, a, it's like a cage fight when it comes to, you know, the Catholics, right? I mean, I don't see Jesus' disciples doing that. You know, Paul, Paul gets annoyed by a demon-possessed slave girl, and he just, get out of him! And that's the end of it, you know? I mean, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't duke it out. There were seven sons of Sceva. I'm way off track now, but there were, in the book of Acts, there were these guys who did, Jewish guys that did exorcisms, and they went to this one guy and he said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And he just tore them up, man. And so, um, so the demons, you know, to attribute the good works of Jesus to demons, imbecilic, right? But they had no other option. In fact, they only had two options. Believe Jesus because of the works. He's the one who pulled the sword out of the stone, as it were, or murder him so that he couldn't do any more good works and eventually his name would fade. 
Sadly, they chose the latter. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Religion chooses murder every time. It kills and it robs and it destroys. We would attribute Jesus' escape to what we call providence. Dr. Michael Feigl writes, God's mysterious providence over history may be less noticeable, but it should be no less notable than his miraculous deeds in history. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him, believed in him there. rather." Is it okay to say that Jesus circled back? So I, I, we make fun of that a little bit, but he did. He, he returned to where his public ministry had begun, where John announced him as the one. His public ministry was about over. The cross was coming pretty fast, and we'll get to it soon. Where did you believe Jesus Christ? Circle back. How is it going since then? Just a, a time of reflection and self-examination. A.W. Tozer commenting on examine ourselves, examining ourselves in this way suggests that there are three possibilities or three states that you could be in. Uh, sometimes you, they overlap, but uh, they're, they're a good place to start. Are you in a rut? Are you a rot? Or are you in revival? Rut, rot, revival. Something also taught by Scooby-Doo. You'll remember it now. Rut, rot, revival. There's a method to this madness. Choose one of those. Does one of those identify you right now in your Christian life? If it does, just act accordingly. Do what you need to do uh, and, and get back with the Lord or continue with him wherever you're at. But um, he loves you. You are his greatest work. If you're saved, he who has begun that good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.